Hello and welcome to 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville, who's in the Shenandoah. I'm Al Hunt in Washington. We remain proud partners with the Science Institute at American University in D.C. We have another really good show for you this week. I hope first you'll ask, and it never gets old, or tell your friends and family about this show as every vote, every subscriber counts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Now for our guest, James, you know, I really think that it's happy days again here for Democrats. Joe Biden has a substantial lead. Democrats are poised to pick up four to seven Senate seats, maybe add to the House, win key governor's races. But Republicans under the radar are pouring a fortune in to retain control of most state legislatures. They did this 10 years ago to take over the state houses and then gerrymander congressional and state legislative seats for a decade. Some of the tactics, sleazy, mostly legal, were captured in a book appropriately titled Rat Fucked. Democrats want to be ready this time, and they have two of the best operatives in America with us today. Kelly Ward, the executive director of the Democratic Redistricting Committee, and Jessica Post, president of the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee. The stakes are huge with a census and new redistricting next year. Kelly, let me start with you because you had to get up early out in California. Your group, led by Eric Holder, Barack Obama involved, this is a big, big deal. Yet, unlike Congress, the Republicans are able to outspend you so far. Why? Well, it's good to be with you guys. Thanks so much for focusing this episode on this topic. Um, as you noted, it's very important, but doesn't often get a lot of attention. So um, really appreciate you guys highlighting the significance of the down ballot races. Um, first, let me just say that it's not an overstatement to say that the next decade of our democracy is on the line. Not only do we need to defeat Donald Trump, that is an existential threat, but the 2020 election is our last chance to elect candidates who will have a seat at the redistricting table in 2021. So the redistricting process gives us the opportunity to set the stage in the legislative branch, both in Congress and in state legislatures around the country, to make sure that we have a fair system on the legislative side with fair districts where the will of the voters can be reflected in the outcome of our elections. We have not seen that across the last decade, given the Republican gerrymandering of 2011. So this is a really important election from the top of the ticket all the way down ballot to your state legislators, because it is the state legislators who draw the maps in most states. So we have to focus down ballot. Um, to your question about money, you know, look, the Republicans know this reality of the significance of not just the top of the ticket, but all the way to the state legislative level and the local level elections. They know that that's how they get their policies through. They know that that's their bench for the long term. And it's really important that Democrats see it that way as well this cycle so that we invest in these races at the level we know the Republicans are going to invest in these races. Jessica, talk a little bit about what they did in 2011. It was it was diabolical, but it was brilliant. And what some of the 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 impact, the effects for the next decade were in some places. Well, thanks again for having me on. I'm so happy to be here with you and and Kelly, my partner in this work today. I, Kelly knows and and you know that I sit on the board of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. So this is truly a partnership in this work. So at the DLCC, one thing that we observed in 2011, the Republicans for the first time used partisan political data to gerrymander themselves into a near decade long control on United States Congress. And they also gerrymandered the state legislative maps at the same time. So they used sophisticated data. They took a strategy where 
in 2010, remember, we Democrats had 60 votes in the United States Senate going into the election and control of the United States House, um, in addition to that, the presidency. And so it felt like things were really going well for the Democrats in America. And the Republicans thought, like, what's the path back to power? And so they realized that they needed to take back, their path back was to take back the states. Democrats weren't investing enough. At the DLCC, um, we only invested $10 million that cycle. Republicans invested $3 million. And for $30 million, they got the best return on investment amount, non-federal dollars. And remember, this is the time before super PACs became as big as they are now. And they were able to take 21 chambers in one night, 21 state legislative chambers. They used this extreme partisan data to create extremely gerrymandered both state legislative and congressional districts. And they jury in, in states like Wisconsin, they said, we need to even be able to survive the highest watermark for a Democrat's election. And at that time, it was 2006, where Governor Jim Doyle was elected in Wisconsin. It was a great year for Democrats across the country. And so they gerrymandered these maps. And uh, and it was it's been a tough one since then. Um, well, Jessica, let me ask both both of you, pick three or four state legislatures that really are the most important. Uh, on November 3rd. And then James has lots of thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think I think I, I sh in terms of redistricting, if you look at states like Pennsylvania, Texas, Florida, and North Carolina, those are hugely important. And I'll tell you, we put the Republicans on their heels. We doubled our electoral budget. We flipped more than 450 seats red to blue since Trump was elected. And in addition to that, we flipped 10 state legislative chambers. So Republicans know that they're up for an unprecedented fight in 2020. And that's why they're doubling down on this level of the ballot. And let me just add, um, at the NDRC, you know, our job is to look at the map through a redistricting lens. So we particularly look at the races that have a seat at the redistricting table, which is what makes these state legislative races so important for us. Um, and so control of redistricting and in, in particular, you know, taking trifecta control out of the hands of the Republicans so that they can't control the redistricting process again is the focus. And we've made a lot of progress on that um, since 2011. Uh, in the, after the 2010 election, so in 2011, the Republicans had trifecta control over 213 congressional districts. Um, that's now way down, and we've shifted away from Republican control and into either Democratic control or, more importantly and better for redistricting, into independent commissions. Um, there are five big states that are left that are still in Republican trifecta control. And those are the states that we're honing in on. So particularly, as Jessica noted, um, Texas, those five states are Texas, Florida, Georgia, um, North Carolina, and Ohio. If we can move the, the uh, needle and get Democrats a seat at the table in those five states, that's to the tune of 106 congressional districts, even before reapportionment. So we need to hone in on, um, on those states. And most notably within that is the Texas House and the North Carolina Senate and North Carolina House. So somebody, I talked to him about this and I said, okay, James, I'm convinced. I got a hundred grand. Where do I send a check? What do I tell them? Uh, I would say the DLCC, probably, James. <laughs> I think that's probably the best place to put it. <laughs> or the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. I mean, look, I think 
Um, I, I definitely think the Texas House is a great investment at this time as well. Um, the Texas House Democratic Campaign Committee, I think, is doing a great job. Kelly and I partner with them also. So those are certainly places that um, that definitely need resources. Another strategic playwright is Kansas, right, where um, similar to, to James in your home state in Louisiana, one of the things we did at DLCC in 2019 in partnership with our friends at NDRC, we went down into Louisiana to make sure that the Republicans didn't gain a supermajority in the state house after Democrats were able to protect Governor John Bell Edwards. In Kansas, we need to go in and break the supermajority in the Kansas state house. Uh, with We only need one seat to do that to protect the Democratic governor's veto. So that's probably the most efficient play financially to put your $100,000 is into that effort to break that supermajority in Kansas. We only need one seat. So why don't you somebody do a project? and say, of the Senate races, who's raised the most money per gross rating point, right? Because they're giving money to Amy McGrath who's raised $30 million, all right? You couldn't spend $30 million in Kentucky. And, you know, it's another thing if you give to MJ Hager, because you could spend $30 million in Texas, but the Democratic donors, I think, are overfunding some races at the expense of others. And not getting involved in races like Jessica uh, and Kelly are talking about. Right. I mean, I just think it's our donors are not being strategic. Um, I, I think that President Obama said it best a couple weeks ago when um, he did the event for Vice President Biden. And he said, whatever you have done, it's not enough. And so do more. So I think this is a, a both and strategy. I mean, certainly your point about how far money can go at the state legislative and local level is exactly right. The same amount of money, um, you know, $1,000 to a state legislative candidate can go so much farther than $1,000 to, you know, a billion dollar budget or these multi-million dollar statewide budgets. Um, the thing that's important to note, though, is that the same dynamics that are making these races competitive, both at the Senate level and the House level, are also the dynamics that are making these races competitive within the state legislative districts, right? The most competitive state legislative districts are in the suburbs. You know, they're in the parts of the state where you're seeing Democrats move away from Republicans generally. So it gives a real opportunity for a full ticket push. Um, and so the state legislative candidates can often draft off of what's happening top of ticket. Um, but to your point, you know, they need their own investment. They need to be able to get on television. They need to be able to run their own races. And as Jessica noted, you know, entities like these House caucuses and Senate caucuses, um, really their job is to just focus on the state legislative races. And so investments in, in those entities are helpful because that's how you ensure that the strategy and the money is going to pick up state legislative seats, regardless of what's happening, um, you know, above them on the ticket. So I'm hearing from North Carolina that there is a small chance that the Democrats could pick up the state Senate. Does that analysis comport with what y'all are seeing? That's absolutely true. I mean, Democrats have a chance to pick up the North Carolina House or Senate. It's um, we only need five seats to flip the North Carolina State Senate, the North Carolina State Senate maps. Uh, did get slightly better as a result of a, a lawsuit um, funded in part by the National Redistricting Foundation. Uh, our DLCC analysis indicates that the Senate is possible, but also the State House. We need six seats to flip the State House. 
Uh, Democrats, we went in and broke the super majorities in North Carolina in the 2020 election cycle. This is really important because unfortunately, Governor Cooper has no role in being able to veto a redistricting map of either the congressional or the state legislative districts. So we really need one of those branches of government, either the North Carolina House or Senate, in order to have a seat at the table in redistricting in North Carolina. You know, obviously, you know, winning a seat in Kansas uh, matters, but just hearing you two, it strikes me that the stakes may be the biggest. They're obviously Ohio, Florida, uh, others important, but Texas and North Carolina at the top of the list. Yeah, I think, I mean, Kelly can weigh in on this, but the growth of congressional districts, I think that we're likely to see in Texas and North Carolina, very important. Uh, and in these cases where we're breaking Republican single party rule of state government by picking up one branch of government in the state. Yeah, it's a game changer in terms of having a seat at the table for redistricting. So let, let's back up. So you, you, your key states are Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, Wisconsin. And then I would add there's the, in terms of um, shifting Republican trifecta control away from, you know, Republicans being able to control redistricting and over into um, have Democrats having a seat at the table. Yes. Um, as Jessica noted, there are also other winnable chambers around the country that we don't want to lose sight of, um, which Jessica can speak to because the DLCC focuses very strongly on, you know, the Minnesota Senate is a top priority as a flip. Jessica mentioned Pennsylvania, um, which is also an important target. So there's the redistricting targets for shifting Republican trifecta control. And then there is the chambers around the country, sort of regardless of redistricting, where we can, um, Democrats are in a position to flip those chambers. So we have to look at both elements of the map. Well, y'all are doing, I'm really doing a large work. I'm I'm glad we can draw some attention to this because it's a really critical issue. Well, yeah, yeah, it sure is. And and I, I just think, though, the problem that you still face is, I think there's so much Democratic money this year growing out of Trump. I mean, they're, they're, in almost every competitive Senate race, the Democrats raising more incumbent Republican, same thing in, uh, in competitive House races. The problem that you all face is, we alluded to earlier, it's under the radar. It's hard to persuade one of these well-intended, uh, well-heeled donors that, hey, you know, there's a state reps race down in North Carolina that really is important. I, I agree with that. I mean, look, I think we've done better than ever in the 2010 election cycle, the LCC spent $10 million. We'll spend $50 million flipping state legislatures this cycle, so five times more. When I came and took the reins of DLCC, one of the things I said is we have to be financially competitive with our Republican counterpart, uh, the Republican State Leadership Committee, going into 2020. And we'll continue to stand that fight up going into that election cycle. Um, it is critical. I think one of the challenges that we have, of course, is that of course, there's star power in, in people like Amy McGrath, who are incredible candidates running against Mitch McConnell. But as we look at things across the country, like voting rights, the ability to make progress on climate change and gun safety, if you look at what happened in a state like Virginia, where we flipped the state legislatures in 2019, progress happens immediately. The voting laws got so much better, setting us up for success here in the 2020 election cycle with mail balloting. Um, we protected LGBTQ and trans folks in this in this in-state law, and also moved laws on gun safety. So many things that sit in Congress for, frankly, decades get moved immediately after uh, state legislatures flip from red to blue. We see that all across the country, 
And so I think that's a, a big thing that folks may not understand is the impact that happens in the states and the potential for collective impact with flipping multiple state legislatures red to blue on just a myriad of issues that are, are so important for most Americans. So this is always important. How did recruiting go? Did we get a lot of the people around run that we wanted or, or just in general? Absolutely. I mean, we've, we're near, we have near or full slates of Democratic candidates in states like North Carolina and Texas, uh, folks like veterans, um, combat veterans in states like Texas, like people like Kiki Williams, um, Air Force colonels in states like North Carolina that are running small business owners. The recruitment looks really good. We have great candidates across the country. Um, in Minnesota, there's a woman, Ann Johnson Stewart, who's a, a civil engineer and a scientist small business owners, community leaders. Uh, we feel very, very good about the recruiting class uh, of these 2020 races. And to build off your point, James, about just where the money can go and um, you know how to lift up these races generally, the because we have such great candidates, the name of the game is just increasing their name ID, right? We know that turnout is going to be high. We know Democrats are fired up this cycle. Um, and as I mentioned, there's a lot of these targeted state legislative races that are within the competitive congressional districts. And so you know there's going to be a lot of effort to turn out these votes. Voters. The key strategy is to make sure that the voters know the state legislative candidates' names well enough to go all the way down ticket and not to roll off or you know drop off their um, their vote before the state legislative level because they just have never heard of these candidates. So a big thing that we try to do and a big reason why the money for these state legislative candidates is so important is because they just have to get their name out there, <laughs> especially in a good year for Democrats. They need to tell Democrats who they are. You know, they need to communicate with swing voters certainly um, but a lot of it is just making sure that these races are on the radar of the voters in these areas where they're going to hear so much about other elections in their um, in their neighborhoods well Kelly to be sure that that's really important but but also that top of the ticket the rising tide does matter 2010 was a great Republican year uh, and they swept in a lot of uh, people who otherwise couldn't have won one of the reasons you all did well last year, second reason, first reason was because of Jessica and Kelly, but the second reason was you had a good year at the top of the ticket in most places. And this year, the top of the, I'm thinking of a place like North Carolina, they had a poll the other day that had Roy Cooper up 20. I doubt it's that much, but if he wins by, you know, sizable double digits, that's going to bring in some of those state legislators, isn't it? Uh, ideally, yes. I, I, look, I think one of the challenges that we have is our maps are gerrymandered as well. And so that means that there's even more of an effort as you're flipping a, a place like the North Carolina House. You need to resource these races to do exactly what Kelly said. One, to make sure the Democrats that are coming out to vo vote for Roy Cooper, to vote for Vice President Biden, understand that they need to vote at our level of the ballot. But we also need to give these folks a reason to vote for these candidates in, in what are truly sometimes very challenging districts. So, you know, one of the things that we learned in, in the strategies of 2008 and uh, 2012 is that while a rising tide does help lift all boats, we still have to resource the our level of the ballot in order for uh, to secure wins at the state legislative level. In 2012, when um, President Obama had an incredible year, many state legislative chambers still didn't flip back because of the challenging maps in these states. So the thing that we absolutely know we have to do from years of, of work is just make sure that these candidates are well-resourced in running competitive campaigns. We invested about $2 million to make sure candidates were fundraising across the country. 
and it's just a huge need. So the assumption that uh, Vice President Biden will win and, and that'll bring in everything, we've tested that top of the ticket theory uh, at the DLCC or for uh, in the Democratic Party and at the DLCC for a long time. And it's a little bit like trickle down economics. Uh, it just doesn't sort of work. It can't be that bad, Jessica. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, Jessica's point about the gerrymandered maps is a really important point because, and, and we saw this in 2018 with massive turnout, with just such energy on the Democratic side. And you had states like North Carolina and Ohio and Wisconsin that didn't pick up any congressional districts at all simply because of the maps. And then when you look at the state legislative results in those states, right, Democrats in North Carolina, they won 51% of the state legislative results, but they only got 44% of the seats, right? In in Ohio, Democrats, excuse me, Republicans won 52% of the state-led results, but they got 63% of the seats. So there's the, the maps really do create this structural barrier that takes you know, massive amount of turnout to overcome. And we've seen, as Jessica's noting, that there are some states because of the maps where the turnout just won't overcome that barrier. And so we have to do both and. We have to, you know, draft off of the energy of the top of the ticket, but we also have to run these individual state legislative races as if they are their own races. So, so give us the website. Tell our subscribers where to follow this. Where do they, where do they go? Well, we'd love folks out to check out dlcc.org. Uh, that's our website. Um, you could follow us on Twitter at DLCC and Instagram and Facebook. And then Kelly, I'll throw it to you. Uh, ours is democraticredistricting.com. Um, and you can go to our website and you there's a map of all the states and you can click on each state and it gives you a list of the candidates we've endorsed in those states. So it's really easy to find um, the candidates that not only are in competitive districts um, that we need to win, but also all of our candidates have signed a pledge against gerrymandering. And so we know that those candidates are going to support fair maps. Um, so you can find those candidates on our website and um, you know give to them directly give to us, give to caucuses. Uh, that's where the money can can really go far. Repeat the name of the site again, please. Sure. DemocraticRedistricting.com. Thank you. There's going to be a lot more voting by mail, the pandemic and other reasons. There may be complications from it, but it's clearly going to be a huge increase from before. Is that an opportunity or a problem for down ballot uh, races? Either one of you. I think it presents a huge opportunity. One of the things that Kelly has talked about is ballot roll off for people not completing the ballot because they don't know the voters at the or they, they don't the voters don't understand the candidates at the bottom of the ticket. And one of the things that we've seen in research is that if, if folks vote by mail, they're much more willing to complete the ballot. They can take more time, Google candidates on their phone. And it presents a great opportunity for us at, at DLCC to get folks to really vote all the way down the ballot. And the other, the flip side of that coin, uh, it is absolutely an opportunity for the state legislative races and to, as Jessica said, to decrease the roll off. It is the thing that keeps me up at night about this election to be candid, <laughs> um, which is just the election administration side of this election and how under-resourced and under-prepared um, these local elections officials are for the volume of vote by mail requests. We saw just debacle 
implementation in the primaries in many key states. Um, and so I think we, we all should be very worried about the ability to process these vote by mail ballots um, and to actually execute the elections at the volume that many states are unfamiliar with. Um, and, you know, Mitch McConnell just released a bill with zero dollars for election funding um, at the state and local level, whereas the House bill had $3.6 billion just for election funding, because that's what the experts say the states need. So it's a huge opportunity, but we should be worried. Well, Kelly, he also has he has zero dollars for the post office, too. Well, that's true. Right. So, I mean, look, all they have to do is starve the system. Right. If it doesn't work, it works in their favor. And that is very much a strategy that they are on right now. Well, um, they, they, they probably don't know what they're facing when they're facing Jessica uh, and Kelly. By the way, Kelly, is, is Barack Obama really helping you much? Very much so. He's he's super fired up about the issue of gerrymandering and redistricting generally, and also very supportive of state legislative candidates specifically. Um, last cycle, we saw him do for the first time a, a broad array of endorsements for state legislative candidates. I think you'll see him do that again. Um, he really is trying to do his part to lift up the significance of these races, as is Eric Holder, um, which is very helpful and a game changer for this level of the ballot. Great. Jessica, thank you so much. Uh... Kelly, thank you so much. Uh, tell uh, tell your husband, Bill Burton, James and I identify. We know what it's like to marry above yourself. <laughs> I absolutely will. I'm very lucky um, myself. And so I will thank you guys again for having us and for focusing on this. Um, we live in this stuff every day, but it's it's not on the radar of a lot of people. So we really appreciate you guys elevating this, this topic. Thank you. It's been a joy to join both of you. Hey, James, the most vilified bribery scandal in America is probably the Teapot Dome scandal in the 20s. Interior Secretary Albert Fall took 400 grand of bribes from oil companies and gave them leasing rights on federal land. Two years ago, Brookings said, how would that translate into current dollars? It would be about 5.3 million then, now it's 6 million. Albert Fall, an Ohio native, would be a piker in Buckeye bribery today. The Republican Speaker of the Ohio House, Mr. Holzholder, and others were indicted last week as the FBI charged they bailed out a big utility company, First Energy, nuclear, and some coal facilities, for a billion dollars in return for $60 million in what the FBI alleges were bribes. That's 10 times bigger than Teapot Dome. One of the best political reporters covering this is Seth Richardson, chief political reporter for the Cleveland Plain Dealer, Cleveland.com, author of Capital Letter Newsletter and the upcoming Capital Letter Podcast. Seth, thanks for joining us. Describe this mind-boggling pay-to-play scheme. I, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there, right? Uh, mind-boggling is certainly it. Um, to, to, to really kind of... Um, you know, it's easy to just kind of look at this and say, okay, First Energy gave uh, Larry Householder allegedly $60 million in a slush fund, and he, you know, used some for personal gain, but they also trampled on legislation. But the thing that's kind of crazy about this whole scandal is just the longevity of it, right? This wasn't just something that happened in 2019 when, you know, the bailout was passed. This goes back to it, it, it started as a concerted effort to get Larry Householder, who 
you know, for some background, it's probably worth mentioning was under FBI investigation during his previous tenure as speaker back in, you know, the early 2000s for, uh, you know, some uh, campaign finance inconsistencies. So, you know, it really started with, and according to the feds, it started with an effort to get householder elected speaker and then turned into this essentially $60 million slush fund that householder and four other accomplices used Um you know, one to to get Householder into the speakership, and two to get this uh, uh, this you know a billion dollar bailout package passed. That's you know on the back of Ohio ratepayers, and uh, then on top of that, when um, you know uh, people started organizing a ballot initiative to repeal that bill, um, using this sixty million dollar slush fund to basically quash the opposition through you know a number of tactics that uh, you know not, frankly not all of which are illegal. But, uh, you know, do include some schemes such as uh, paying $15,000 to uh, one of the campaign organizers for the uh, the repeal ballot initiative to kind of be their mole in the campaign. Um, it's yeah, it's just it's, it's really this just giant web um, that is almost hard to kind of internalize because when you're talking about corruption of this, you know, when you talk about political corruption, you know, you're usually you're talking about it a singular you know politically corrupt individual but this just is it seems so widespread because of you know how long and thought out it was with this you know you know singular goal um and it does look like according to the the documents that um the department of justice put out the affidavit that householder had intent on you know using these same kind of techniques on other industries the payday loan industry which is you know kind of been at the center of uh, uh, some investigations in here um but Seth, let me ask you this this guy was speaker before uh he was investigated uh by the fbi he escaped but most people thought boy he was lucky to escape then he comes back so everybody knows about him i mean he's obviously a shrewd politician but he comes back and they elect him speaker again with sort of with malice of forethought yeah it, it it's certainly highly questionable i would think it was highly questionable at the time and i think it's probably worth pointing out the reason he was under investigation the previous time was for you know some campaign finance irregularities and some uh, some potential dirty politics that was going on when when the deal and and that's part of the other the political side of what's been interesting about all this is you know we talked about it a little bit before we started recording that this is this should be a ready-made issue for householders political opponents um, and frankly the Republican Party's political opponents to just jump on and grasp onto but because this scandal has tendrils in so many parts of state government um, there's really been a lot of relative quiet about it in an election year so think about how weird that is this isn't like an off year thing it's an election year so you go back to the beginning of 2019 Really, you can go back to 2018, I guess, the 2018 elections when, um, you know, there was a concerted effort by Householder to get his candidates elected over the previous speaker, Ryan Smith. Obviously, Householder was victorious with that, but he gets to the state house again, you know, gets reelected. And in 2019, he doesn't have the votes to be elected speaker among the Republican caucus itself. So all of a sudden, you know, he needs some Democratic votes to get into the speakership's office. So it, it he kind of creates this bargain with uh, some in the Democratic caucus and really just kind of upended all leadership in the state house. Um, the speaker was switched over, you know, Householder obviously took the speakership. 
uh, the minority leader, Fred Strayhorn, was ousted as the minority leader as a bunch of Democrats made the, the bargain with Householder. Well, but Seth, let me ask you this. So from everything I've read that you've written, there haven't been any Democrats implicated yet. Are you saying you think there will be? I, do, I don't know. I don't think I could comment on that. I'm going to turn this over to James, but when you look at this, this is a legislature that is almost, what, two to one Republican. They control everything. This guy was a was a known sort of shady figure. I, I can't help but believe this has got to redound to the Republicans' disadvantage in November. Oh, absolutely. No question. You think it would. And in one of the pieces I wrote, it's it's got to be hard, um, you know, not that anybody should necessarily have sympathy for anything that involves corruption. They shouldn't. Um, but you've got a Republican Party that has been spending, you know, we don't have any top races here except for the president coming up. Right. So it's got to be, you know, how is the Republican Party in this state supposed to, you know, really defend Donald Trump? Um, who's, you know, the center of a lot of, uh, uh, you know, corruption allegations himself when, it, you know, they can't even keep their own house in order, right? It, it just, it, of course, it's going to rebound. Now, the problem with that, though, is, again, while this should be, you know, a soft toss for the November elections, because, you know, this even going back before Larry Householder, this is one of the most gerrymandered states in the country as far as legislative districts go. So, I, I don't know exactly what the turnover is going to look like, if any. Now, there are a couple of seats that were already competitive pre-scandal that I'd expect would probably shift pretty, you know, I don't know if they're necessarily in Democrats' favor, but they should give Democrats a leg up, especially because there's a lot of incumbents in those seats. Um, whether it puts any more districts into play is kind of hard because, you know, they – 10 years ago, they basically drew the district so that they would be as safe as possible for everyone. Um, though, though actually the, the one seat that may, uh, may, may be affected the biggest doesn't even really have to do with the state house. It's, um, the congressional district down in Cincinnati with Steve Shabbat, a Republican. Let's for the moment, take the corruption and put it aside and explain to our subscribers what was the issue? Because it would be possible to be on one side of this issue, as I think the governor was, and not be corrupt, which so far this word doesn't apply to the governor. But like the Koch brothers and the Sierra Club on one side and the AFL-CIO was on the other side, as I understand it. So what was the issue with this energy company and what was the question before the legislature? So the issue was there are two nuclear power plants in Ohio, the Davis-Bessey nuclear power plant and the Perry nuclear power plant. And First Energy was, you know, they, they were struggling. They're aging. They needed some upgrades. They just basically needed propping up, according to First Energy, who owned them. Uh, First Energy spun off these nuclear power plants into First Energy Solutions as part of a bankruptcy. And, um, you know, as part of the, as part of the attempt to kind of spin these nuclear power plants off into their own company, they lobbied the legislature and the governor's office to get a bailout package. Now, what this bailout this bailout package isn't as simple as say like, hey, the legislature is just giving them you know one point three billion dollars. It was a rate um, a, a a fee on um, Ohioans' power energy bills, not just first energy customers, all Ohioans' bills uh, to basically subsidize these two nuclear energy plants. Now. 
um, the argument from a lot of – you know, because there's so many competing interests, you know, labor uh, – a lot of the labor groups were in favor of it because those are – you know, they're labor shops, right? Those are labor jobs that are at those plants. 1,500 people do work at those plants. So that was why labor was on that side. Um, you know, the other – like the, the reason for some of the uh, – the argument over the green energy aspect is, you know, this was built – as Ohio um, energy independence kind of thing, you know, um, diversification of the portfolio and whatnot. But what the bailout package did was it killed a lot of other green energy products by kind of funneling it all to this nuclear energy product. There's a couple other projects that are out there, some wind farms and whatnot, but it killed some of the other, uh, the, the green energy funding for other prod projects such as, you know, wind, solar and whatnot. So it all kind of goes, the, the surcharge all goes to these nuclear power plants now, which has been spun off into Energy Harbor. Um and I mean, you know, a lot of the questions about that are also you look at uh, a financial report from Energy Harbor not that long, you know, I think just a couple months ago, and they're talking about doing stock buybacks all of a sudden and and specifically citing House Bill 6, the bailout bill, as a reason that they're able to do, the you know, these – this um, – these stock buybacks. So there, there's all sorts of questions about that. Now, to your question about if people can support it without being corrupt, yeah, of course. You look at the the, the two sponsor or two of the main proponents of it. Uh, one of them is a Republican, one of them is a Democrat. The reason being that the power plants are in their district, right? That's a lot of jobs in their district. So there's been a you you cover politics, you have a newsletter. But a year ago, Ohio was a red state, right? Do you agree that right now Ohio is a swing state? I would say – so I guess a year ago I would have said Ohio is a red state that can vote blue, right? It's proven that way in the past. Barack Obama won in 2012. Sherry Brown won in 2018 by like six percentage points. So um, well, less than he won before, but he won. Sure, yeah. So it, it, But it's perfectly capable of electing Democrats. Um, as it looks right now, I would, I would say it's – still slightly leans Republican just because, you know, it's probably a one point state, give or take, when you look at the polls and you look at the way that Donald Trump is spending in the state. I mean, you know, purchase something like $20 million worth of ads just for the fall and only four television markets. That's a huge investment here. That's that's not running like the state as a layup. That's running like you need to save the state. And you look at all of the other kind of figures uh, you know, polling figures that come out and everything makes, you know, everything is close. I mean, he was he was down in a Rasmussen poll in Ohio. And, you know, we know how Rasmussen tends to kind of lean, at least in recent times. So when I look at it, yeah, I think it's certainly in play. It's just a matter of how much the Democrats really want to try to play here, because there's arguably other more fruitful territories for Democrats to go to the Arizonas, the North Carolinas, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, of course, that's, you know, those are kind of the focus, although it's looking like Trump is pulling out of Michigan already. Um, so there's other kind of more fruitful territory that I think Democrats will probably invest in. That said, um, you know, if, if, uh, if Democrats do want to make a concerted effort here, there, there, there are some gains that I think, they they could possibly see particularly the supreme court races here because with the supreme court's decision on gerrymandering that is relegated to the state court if they flip the two supreme court seats that are up this time um they stand a chance of being able to uh, counter any gerrymandered maps that may come up in the future which has been kind of the heavy issue here um as far as electing democrats to the state house and even to congress 
Well, man, that, that, that's great. That's good. The analysis is just spot on. We're fortunate to get this kind of insight on not the scandal, but just overall politics. James, I think you would bet that Biden is going to make a big effort in Ohio. Yes. Yes. I mean, and, you know, some of it, it this race is so intense and so nationalized and so engaged. I don't know if it really matters what time, when they get the field coordinator to, to Ohio. I really don't. I mean, I, I think that voters are just really, really engaged in this election. And I don't know how much you're going to be swayed by television spots. I, I think opinions are pretty, pretty hard out there. And I think Seth's point, if Trump is spending $20 million in the state that he carried by, what, eight points, Seth, last time? Uh, uh, yeah, 450,000 votes. That's a sign of weakness, not a sign of strength. Let me ask you, before we let you go, Seth, how does this affect Mike DeWine, who has had a reputation as a pretty conservative guy, but a you know a straight shooter, certainly uh, no tinge of, of uh, corruption? Yeah, I don't think, you know, the feds have clearly said that they they aren't looking at Governor DeWine's office right now. And I think if you talk to most people around the state, they, you know, Mike DeWine's worth like $100 million. He's not taking a bribe from an energy company. That is kind of the prevailing sentiment. Um, and he just doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would take a bribe even if it was offered to him, frankly. Um, and I, I think if you ask just about anyone around the state, they're going to agree with that. That's Democrats. That's Republicans. That's, you know, even even people who hate Mike DeWine probably don't think he's going to take a bribe. How about the people around him? That's the question, right? I don't know that there's any criminality there. I don't want to allege that. But because of just the sheer connections that First Energy has with, you know, they're just widespread, right? They're an energy company who's lobbying the state house. Of course, they've got a bunch of connections. But if this were just a case of, hey, this is you know just these five people, you know Larry Householder and his four um, his four people who were doing some criminality, sure, okay. But when you read the affidavit from the feds, it certainly makes it look like First Energy, you know, was involved in at least some respects. I don't know how. I don't know if that rises to the level of criminality. And I, you know, when you look at all the connections that. Mike DeWine, you know, or the people around Mike DeWine have such as, you know, his top legislative liaison was, you know, head of a dark money group that was named David before he, you know, joined DeWine's office. That's certainly questionable, right? Uh, you look at past and prior, you know, our current and former staffers of his who have either lobbied on behalf of First Energy or are currently lobbying on behalf of First Energy. It just starts to look very strange. Um, I think that you know, and he's he had as far as the public opinion goes of him, right? It, um, you know, he's been riding high from some of the you know the coronavirus response, at least the initial stages of the coronavirus response. At one point, his his approval rating was like eighty percent, which is unheard of. You know that, especially in this day and age, that's you know wartime numbers. Um, and I don't even know if that would be the case at the national level anymore. There are some heroes in this. I mean, actually, it was a, some Republicans that went to the United States attorney with this story. Am I correct? And that's how it blew up. Yes, absolutely. Um, the So the, the person who was running a the ballot initiative to repeal the um, uh, House Bill 6, 
you know, he's a Republican. He, you know, my colleague Jeremy Pelzer did a great story with him where you know, he talked about his kind of reasonings for doing it. And if you look at the affidavit and some of the things he said in there, yeah, it's it it, it probably took a lot of guts to do that because let, let's look at okay, let's look at the arrest real quick, okay? So Larry Householder is obviously the big name who's kind of got his fingers and everything. Everybody on Cap Square knows Neil Clark, and frankly, at some point, has probably done business with Neil Clark. Juan Cespedes, another connected guy that people know. Jeff Longstreth, another connected guy that people know. These are the, the, it's not so much just that you know Larry Householder was involved. It's that hey, these kind of power brokers on Cap Square were also involved. And you know, if you always want run the risk of if you if you're in the position that the informants are, where they go and they talk about this to the feds, and you know that gets out, how does that hurt their long term career prospects? Now, in in this case, I I don't think it's going to hurt, right, because of the sheer uh, you know, magnitude of what's going on here. The sheer magnitude, uh, boy, you have really outlined that. Uh, and when we think that it is in current dollars, in current dollars, 10 times bigger than the Teapot Dome scandal. Wow, that's staggering. Uh, Seth, we can't thank you enough. You've really been terrific. Uh, and go back to your daytime job and we'll look forward to your podcast when it starts. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Seth. Thanks a million. Thank you. And I want to thank everyone out there for listening to 2020 Politics War Room. Follow the show at Twitter, Politics War Room. Uh, emails, politicswarroom at gmail.com. That's politicswarroom at gmail.com. Thank you for subscribing. Please rate the show with a five-star review. Uh, be safe. Wear masks if you go out. Socially distance. Uh, this virus ain't going away, I'm afraid. We'll be back next week. Take care of yourself this week. Good deal.